This is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient General and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In our first episode of Season 4, Harun Bashir is in conversation with Shahid Mati on Africa, Islam, Law and History. Dr. Mati, one of your interests centers on Muslim history in Africa. Uh, Now, many feel that the history of Islam and Muslim communities in Africa is often overlooked and neglected. Indeed, many Islamic studies courses or history of Islam modules tend to focus on Islam in the Middle East and perhaps South Asia. Do you feel that the history of Islam in Africa is overlooked within academic work somewhat? And if so, why do you think this is the case? I I do think, yes, we can generally say that at least when compared to the Middle East uh, and so-called North Africa, but in perhaps even 20 years, lots of work has been done on Islam in Africa, but certainly not nearly as much as the the MENA region, that is the Middle East and North uh, Africa. Uh, But I think, and, and... there were certain reasons because the, the, the Middle East and North Africa was seen as the heartland of Islam, while Africa uh, is often seen as on the periphery. And here, so-called sub-Saharan Africa, we can perhaps later speak as to why I say so-called sub-Saharan Africa. Um, so, so yes, that has happened. But I think in the last 10 years, so lots of work has been done and, and lots of research is underway. But I certainly think even Muslim scholars, you know, and students uh, should start taking and looking more seriously into uh, the history of Islam uh, in Africa. Uh, So certainly, and I think we we can do that by exactly, for example, the Timbuktu manuscripts and the manuscripts all over Africa, even up to the Congo, uh, written in the Arabic script. And that can be a good doorway, good entry point into studying the history of Islam in Africa. So lots of work has been done, but we certainly need to do much, much more. Okay. So, I mean, from that, would you say then perhaps it's the case that Islamic studies, at least, you know, um, in the Western academies generally, has is still to some extent suffering from its Orientalist genealogies that perhaps constructed Islam as somewhat of an Arab religion and then kind of focused on at least the Middle Eastern region more so than than uh, other parts of the world? Indeed, I think to a large extent, yes. And when they, and specifically when it comes to Africa, uh, a, a particular oriental, and this, this comes from the colonial enterprise, was to speak about Islam noir, means black Islam, versus white Islam. So white Islam or red Islam, Islam Rouge or Islam Blanc would be seen as Islam of the, and, and as you say, those Orientalist approaches to the study of Islam indeed. And, and, and to a large extent, it still continues so that people in so-called sub-Saharan Africa or black Islam are often seen as syncretic Islam. Uh, people here are Muslim, but they don't really become Muslim. For example, as late as 2011, an American scholar, Christopher Wise, uh, he looks at the Timbuktu uh, chronicles and he insists that even though these chronicles were written by black Muslims, he says, they really never can be writers. So this thing of uh, continuing 
that Africa, we can only know Africa, including Islam in Africa, as an oral tradition and archaeological tradition. So yes, indeed, it's very much linked still to that Orientalist uh, prejudice uh, 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 around uh, Africa. But like, but, 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 so, so, so these are the challenges that are facing us. But I'd also want to emphasize here that exactly Muslim institutions should be looking at Africa. And in fact, all the so-called peripheral areas, which would sometimes include Asia, because, but Africa has particularly, and Muslims and Islam in Africa has particularly uh, been uh, neglected or rather uh, marginalized. So, I mean, I guess in a sense what you're saying is that the study of Islam which is where you specialize, would perhaps benefit from a more of a decolonial approach to really reflect on the way it's been constructed and to reassess what's considered, you know, um, correct or accurate Islamic studies in, in a way. Absolutely. And a, de absolutely. And a decolonial approach uh, is exactly about an archive. And when it comes to an archive, uh, what Mamadou Diouf, the, the Senegalese scholar, called the Islamic library in Africa has, is an old, it's, it's, a, it's a library that has a long history in contrast to what we've been taught that the only library uh, is the colonial library. And this colonial library, of course, uh, represented uh, people in Africa and Muslims in Africa. And, and, but yet the Islamic library is much older has been there, and to this library, or if you want to call it an archive, Muslims in Africa, black Muslims in Africa, have made a tremendous contribution to this library. So yes, a decolonial approach is exactly about uh, we appreciating this Islamic library in Africa and showing that how Muslims in Africa contributed, how, uh, of course, linked to the larger Islamic tradition from all over the world uh, and took it very seriously and continued and uh, to, 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 to contribute to, let us call it the body of knowledge, to the Muslim religious intellectual tradition. So decolonial approach is not only important, it's absolutely necessary and indispensable. Okay. Now, Dr. Mati, you mentioned uh, briefly the archives in Timbuktu. Um, now, you yourself have completed a fascinating paper surrounding the uh, fatawa found in Timbuktu. Uh, in one of your articles on the topic, you make a compelling argument uh, regarding female agency and marital law. Could you explain why you believe these fatawa are a more accurate reflection of life in Timbuktu than the legal texts that many scholars often rely on? And specifically, maybe you could comment on the conclusion that you came to that women had agency and were utilizing the law to their benefit. So, so let me first say, as we know, that fatwas, uh, fatwas are one of three uh, genres of Islamic legal literature. So the others are fiqh and usul al-fiqh. Uh, usul al-fiqh, uh, um, uh, often uh, translated as Muslim legal theory or legal hermeneutics, whilst fiqh uh, Islamic is Islamic substantive law, and these are found in large manuals, Islamic substantive law manuals. So fatwas are also legal documents. Absolutely, they are, they, they are a legal genre. But fatwas 
uh, can be used as source because often, uh, uh, because fatwas is about the real, is about the social, the everyday life. Indeed, as fiqh and usul is. The difference is that, uh, and as, as fiqh and usul are, but the difference is that what often with fiqh is that we, uh, the, the, the social, the metadata has been removed. So we just have, if you want, let's call it for now, pure legal text. But Within fatwas, we, because a fatwa is a, is a legal opinion on an event that took place within society. And therefore, firstly, fatwas are thus invaluable sources to tell us about society. So, for example, if you look at marriage, divorce, or even commercial fatwas, we know what people did. And some fatwas often contain a lot of information. Now, this is not only concerning women, but also men and everybody else in society. So when I say that fatwas are more accurate, let us say they give us a, 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 a more hands-on understanding of Muslim society, what people did. So fatwas in that sense are a better historical source as compared, say, to Islamic substantive law manuals as well as legal uh, uh, legal hermeneutical, uh, Islamic legal hermeneutical text because these are more, if you want, let's, because they, they, they don't touch on society directly. And therefore, uh, the fatwas are a better reflection. They are a source. They can tell us stories. They can tell us what people did. Uh, the mufti would often include, you know, uh, so, so a fatwa always begins with a question. I have read your question that so-and-so happened. This and this person did this on that and that date, for example. Uh, and this was the result. There was a marriage dispute. Uh, there was an agreement, uh, for example, on a commercial transaction. So in that sense, fatwas are better historical, as better as a historical source. Now, when it comes to women, for example, these marriage fatwas, uh, they will tell us what a woman said to the mufti, what she said to her husband, what she requested uh, from her husband. And often we see that she would refer to Islamic law. Hence, I say that for her uh, to, to cite the law, this tells this woman understood what was Islamic law, even if it was very rudimentary. And this equally applies to men, is that Muslims knew more or less it was not just an elitist that an elitist um, body of knowledge uh, that only muftis knew. Of course, muftis and Islamic scholars were specialists, as we know that. So they didn't need know things in depth, but they knew enough in a that enable them, as I said, to utilize the law uh, to their benefits. So, for example, uh, a, a wife would say to her husband, but uh, if you're not giving me maintenance, she knew that, for example, a husband not giving maintenance um, allowed her to apply, for example, or to go on for annulling the marriage. So, hence, I'm saying that women knew this. And in that sense, uh, this is how they practice their agency. They had sufficient, or even if it was little knowledge of Islamic law, and then went about. Uh, and, and, and let me just say something. I think that is that is extremely important here. When I say agency, I don't. I I I, I don't mean here that women just simply did what they like. Saying within the boundaries within the parameters of Islamic law. And I'm not looking here at a way of saying that they rebelled against Islamic law and threw it away. No, that they would, as Muslims, aware Muslims, understood what Islamic law gave them, but at the same time, what the obligations that Islamic law placed on every Muslim. 
And for me, that is an exercise of agency. So I don't use agency as in the Western sense, being this complete notion of freedom where you just do what you like. No. Agency is that it includes knowledge and then putting that knowledge into practice. And as human beings, yes, all of us, men and women, we, 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 we get up to things. For example, we may manipulate the law. Uh, so, so the fatwas tell us all these things, how women at certain times use the law in their favor, even manipulated it, not because uh, uh, this is the nature of women, but because this particular woman understood and uh, Islamic law would benefit her for even her own narrow interests, as men uh, would do. And so this is what I mean when I say that agency and and in that way they use Islamic law to their benefit and to their benefit could have been for a selfish reason but it could also have been totally selfless you know uh, 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 and also for necessity so it's a fascinating world that the fatwas give us although I must say often the fatwas don't have too much information but at least enough for us to be able to discern things and wonder about them. Okay. Thank you. So, I mean, just to, just to kind of summarize and uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. So what you're arguing is that the manuals of fiqh, in a sense, highlight the theory, whereas the fatwas highlight how that theory manifested, was instantiated at certain points in history. So therefore, it gives us a better indication of how these ideas were actually established in history. Is that fair? Uh, absolutely. I, I think so. Let me just say, and that's more when it comes to what is called usul al-fiqh, or Islamic legal theory or legal hermeneutics. Uh, uh, the, the, the second genre, fiqh, or Islamic substantive law, these are often taken from fatwas. That's another discussion. Let me say, for example, if we look at fiqh text, fiqh will say to us, uh, 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 the fiqh text, uh, so fiqh text is more the application of the theory. But fatwas comes, something happened in society, and the mufti then applies exactly for the mufti to give his legal opinion. And I say opinion because a fatwa is never binding. It's a legal opinion. So the people who, who, who this fatwa impact on need not accept the fatwa. They can go to many other muftis. For example, you have a question and you want the mufti to let you, you want an answer, you know, from the expert, from the Muslim jurist consult to firstly his bias and his knowledge. But if you're not happy with it, you can go to another mufti. And so uh, something happened, and then the mufti then uh, looks at Islamic legal theory, uh, sorry, legal theory, usul al-fiqh, and he will go to the uh, Islamic uh, substantive manuals. In the case of Tambaktu in the Maliki school of thought, he'll look at all the manuals that were written by the great scholars of that school, and then will apply it. And then we'll say, okay, this is the opinion. My opinion is based on this. It's based on this particular hukum, it's based on this uh, means ruling, and it's based on what, for example, earlier scholars says, and therefore I've come to this. So, 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 but he applies to a real situation. He, the mufti never just sits in his room and thinks up and thinks up uh, things, you know, and just and and that that is often what again, if we come back to this orientalist trope, you know, people like Kultz and when he used to write, the assumption was just that the mufti used to just sit in his room and think up things out of his own you know, hypothetical things. No, a fatwa was clear. A fatwa could only have been passed on an incident that had already transpired, not on something that's going to happen tomorrow. 
So this is the real world. So the fatwa is 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 bringing fiqh, the first usul al fiqh, the first genre, and then fiqh to the real world, and then applying it. Yes, uh, Dr. Mati, given the tired tropes of oppressed Muslim women that you can find in lots of Orientalist literature, how do the the fatwas from Timbuktu impact our understanding of women's agency in Islamic history? Thank you very much for that question, Dr. Bashir, because I think it's an extremely important question. And I think also the question contains really the answer. Uh, and, and that's that's and that's why I think it's such an important question. Yes, precisely because it's just that whenever we think of Islamic law, we think about this poor, oppressed women, woman, you know, who is just at the beck and call of a husband and she's presented as a victim of Islamic law, you know, and coming back to the question of no agency at all. The fatwas precisely firstly shows what these Orientalist tropes do is that they assume that uh, Muslim women have no knowledge of Islamic law, that they assume that these women are ignorant, and they assume that these women simply obey Ernest Gellner, and that is why Talal Asad says Ernest Gellner says, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the English anthropologist was that the Muslim subject only behaves, you know, only obeys. But what Talal Asad shows us is that the Muslim person, the Muslim subject, thinks and speaks. And exactly that's what the fatwa does. It shows that women speaks. The muftis, there's one mufti in Timbuktu who goes to this woman who asks them their opinion. They speak. They say certain things. They, they pronounce Islamic law. They say to their husbands. But as I said, it is, it is not a type of resistance as there's no antagonism. Um, uh, uh, so, so, so they will say to the husband within the parameters of Islamic law. Now, we can, of course, have a different discussion as to how we can re-look at certain aspects of Islamic law. But certainly what it shows is that women's agency is practiced. And if a woman has knowledge and she speaks and she thinks and she applies, and she's a good Muslimah because to her, Islam is central in her life. Then we see that that very understanding, and this is what the fatwas give us, you know, is that it, it challenges all these, what you correctly call, uh, tired uh, tropes of oppressed Muslim women. This Muslim woman didn't see themselves as oppressed, as a victim, as at the receiving end of some terrible, draconian, masculine, uh, um, uh, Islamic uh, law imposition. Yes, uh, they saw themselves as, I'm a Muslim, this is what Islamic law says, and yes, I have my understanding. And even if they went out of Islamic law, even if they did things to manipulate Islamic law, that is possible, as men uh, um, manipulate Islamic law. Indeed, as the Muslim ulama often would, uh, some of them could even manipulate Islamic law. But what it does show is that they were able to speak for themselves, to think for themselves, and this challenge is uh, it, 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 it debunks that, uh, which you correctly called, Dr. Bashir, uh, tired tropes of oppressed Muslim women. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Mati. Now, you also have an interest on issues regarding racial justice. Uh, for example, you've written on the curse of ham narrative that exists within the Abrahamic faith traditions. We've seen the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement globally, and this has also caused many Muslims to be introspective regarding the problems of racism within our own communities. 
Now, do you believe the problem of racism is a modern issue or is it something that's always existed amongst Muslim communities? Let me uh, uh, thank you again, Dr. Bashir, for this very, very important uh, point that you're raising. Let me firstly just very quickly say that my article on the curse of Ham, I didn't look at the the whole discussion around the race matter around curse of Ham. In fact, I my, my aim of that article was to show that how the curse of Ham story uh, um, is what, what I would call the very early roots of this, what this chauvinism that would later become Zionism and to remove people from the land. To me, the issue uh, with the curse of Ham narrative as it appears in the Hebrew Bible was about land and how to remove the Canaanites. And then, of course, I linked it to modern Zionism. So uh, I was saying that this that this notion of Yewa, uh, this exclusive Jewish God in the narrow sense was to remove uh, the Canaanites from their land and to say that the land has been defiled and therefore the land should only be for the chosen people. Indeed, as modern Zionism did when it said that Palestine was a land without people for a people without land, that very, very dangerous and of course wrong myth. Nevertheless, let me to come to your question, Dr. Bashir. Um, in a way, no, I think there's always been prejudice. Of course, there's a long, there's a large discussion around racism. Okay. And so we can speak about prejudice and, and, and especially against black people within Muslim literature. I think that existed within Muslim societies. However, I do think, and, 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 and it's, 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 it's something that I, that I think always around about, uh, you know, on is that, but racism in its, in, in its manifestation to modernity, in that sense, it's something new because that racism is to negate the other. Is that when this uh, so-called white European, it was not simply prejudice, but was to negate anyone who was not European. So in that sense, racism is a modern issue. It arises with the Enlightenment, with modernity, and then absolutely implemented with the colonial enterprise. Is there prejudice in Muslim community? Has there been, uh, especially against people, darker skinned people? Absolutely. Um, and that has been in Muslim communities. However, I think, uh, and we should not be apologetic about these Muslims. We should face, you know, our, let me use this metaphor, you know, our ugly uh, legacies or our illegitimate children, if you want to call it that. However, uh, uh, with all the prejudice and all, especially of darker skinned people, what we should not compare it to the racism of the West. I, I, I think we should be clear about because notwithstanding, and unfortunately, uh, the modern Muslim communities, Muslim countries have, and, and, and this prejudice against dark skinned people continues. So yes, if, 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 in that sense, there is racism, and then it's not an, a, 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 a new thing, and it's something that really uh, Muslims, uh, in your question, I think, again, thank you for putting this in sense, must be introspective regarding the problem of racism and prejudice within our own communities. Certainly, uh, 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 we haven't done as much, we haven't uh, lived up, a, 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 and we have not been... As, 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 as frank and as honest and something that we should do, but we should not compare what is in Muslim communities to Western racism. Western racism uh, is something unique in that it negated the, the and, and, and as we know from a decolonial approach, is, the, is to negate the epistemological, epistemic uh, 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 potential and possibility of others. 
And that is a very special kind of racism. Okay, thank you for that, Dr. Mati. Um, so, I mean, just to, to kind of summarize, there's always been prejudice and you can see this throughout history. However, the, the, the virus of racism is a modern, a modern invention. Is, is, that, is that fair to say? Yes, and, and I know that this, this is a contentious point and I'm, and, I'm, and, and I'm prepared to say that, yes, you know, that it, it's something that we must have a discussion. It cannot just be, uh, I, I think even my own understanding, we need to constantly problematize it. But certainly, yes, that, that, that is what I am saying uh, 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 in large, but it's, of course, a discussion that we must keep having. I mean, uh, uh, in the last, about four months ago, there was a very important discussion on one of the uh, listservs, uh, uh, one based on the research Duke Africa, and, 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 and you refer to Black Lives Matter. I mean, things came up like uh, Muslims are very quick to point out and to support Black Lives Matter, but what about what they, t what was termed Arab Islamic racism? Uh, spoke about uh, the, the whole question started with uh, the anti-black racism in the Arab world. I accept that. But then it quickly went on to Arab Islamic racism to link this racism to Islam itself. Nobody, for example, speaks about, uh, we, we, we don't hear about Christian slavery racism. We don't hear about Roman pagan slavery or racism. You see, so 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 the, so there was this aim to 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 and and some people even argued what, what some call black Orientalism was to show that Islam's racism is much older than Western racism. Um, uh, this is what this black Orientalism argue, and there's no other way to see it, that Islam in itself is responsible for this racism and the slavery. And Islam, what it really came to that point was that Islam is anti-black. And that, of course, is absolutely ahistorical and is absolutely wrong. Uh, so, 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 but what I am saying is that certainly in Arab world, in Asia, there is this prejudice against dark-skinned people. And, and it's not uh, sufficient for us to condemn uh, 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 and to stand with. It's not sufficient for us to stand in social solidarity with Black Lives Matter. Of course, that we have to do. And I think that Black Lives Matter is even for me in the United States even more important than Muslim Lives Matter, if we have to call it that way, given the longings of, of, of oppression. However, we also then have to look at what is happening in the Muslim world, uh, in, in the so-called heartland, uh, you know, how dark-skinned people are treated. So, 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 because if we, if we, firstly, because it's the correct thing to do, and that is what Allah commands us, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the equality, you know, of, of, of humankind. But if we don't, and then it is easy to exploit it by this notion called black Orientalism, which is a very, very dangerous development that we should be aware of. And we should not, uh, by, by neglecting these things, we are allowing black Orientalism to take these shots at Islam itself. Thank you. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Mati. And also thank you for kind of contributing and engaging with what are naturally very contentious and sensitive topics. Um, I've got one more question that I'd like to ask. I mean, you've, you've kind of already alluded to it in your previous response when we were discussing, you know, taking on issues of prejudice and racism. And that's while it's relatively quite straightforward to locate racist attitudes amongst Muslim communities and many would feel we should call that out and try and challenge that. 
Is it also the case that parts of our inherited religious tradition also needs, need to be critiqued? Is it the case that there are occasionally discriminatory and bigoted views that are occasionally imbibed within legal and exegetical texts that also need to be revisited and perhaps even revised? Yes, I, I, I think, you know, to as an answer, yes, we can find illegal and exegetical texts. However, again, uh, um, we, we we need to revisit them very, very carefully. I do think, I do think in what pre-modern literature you can find it. Uh, uh, for example, and often some of these, it's what Muslim scholars growing up in their community, and uh, in, in, I'm talking about the pre-modern Muslim scholars. Remember, uh, Islam comes to an area where lots of these views are present, and Muslims are human beings. Uh, um, yes, they, and Islam guides us to do what is correct, but we are not free from our, our local baggage. Okay? And so, so, for example, Al-Ghazali, uh, offer, in some of the texts, um, in Sunni Shi'i texts, uh, you, you, you may have hadiths that speak about, um, I think in one of Al-Ghazali's books, he speaks about the Kurds uh, and some of the Turks as people who are akrab ilal baha'im, you know, who are closer to being animals. So, so we have that, and these things reflect certain political developments. Al-Jahith wrote in a certain way. However, if we, the danger is this, if we approach those texts selectively, and this is often what happens, then we, 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 we can run a mock. You, you know, we can run around and say that you see that all these texts are just um, all uh, racist texts, etc. But I think a revisiting means is that we try and leave our ideological baggage and see them and also place them in their, in their context. And of course, uh, where these go against the Quran that speaks about the quality of human beings, then we have to say that. So yes, we do have legal and exegetical texts. For example, the curse of Ham story. And many Muslim scholars, some, let me not say, some Muslim scholars borrowed the story, especially some of the, some tafsir texts, uh, because I think they, this is my own assumption often, they they thought that the Quranic, you know, what we call the Quranic narratives, uh, require some detail. They found some gaps, and in order to fill it, then they brought in these what what, what are called Israeliyat. So, for example, uh, uh, Noah's son is also said to be black. Where else in some of the fatwas, uh, Ahmad Baba Sudani wrote a very important fatwa, and he just totally negated this notion uh, that. Uh, 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 Ham uh, was black, for example. So, so, so we have lots of things in Muslim literature, and especially exegetical literature. Uh, the legal literature, again, if if you look at uh, 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 the substantive law text, then they don't really talk about people's color, etc. Um, maybe in some fatwas, but I think the the legal literature has got less, much, much, much less. Than, for example, some of the exegetical literature. But those prejudices are not only against darker skinned people. It may even be against Persians. It may be against uh, Arabs. Um, it, 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 it may be against Turks, etc. So again, it behoves us to go, uh, and it's our duty to reread these texts, but see them as these are human productions, and we can disagree with them where they where they go wrong. Uh, I, I, I alluded earlier to how people use some hadith. For example, one of these uh, scholars that promotes this very dangerous notion of black orientalism um, 
Uh, he cited the hadith in Sahih Muslim, for example. This, the, the hadith says uh, a person became a Muslim, and the Prophet accepted him, of course. Uh, only later for the for the for the for the mass of this person to come and say to the Prophet, "But this person is my slave, and you must return this person to me." So the hadith in Sahih Muslim says uh, the Prophet then gave the master two black slaves in return for this Muslim person. He said, "Okay." Take this is what the hadith says. Take these two black slaves and give me back this person to which your master agreed. So this person is a journalist, uh, his black orientalist uh, proponent. He says, "Can you see? Even the prophet was racist because he gives two black slaves in return for one, presumably because the hadith doesn't say uh, whether this other slave who became Muslim was Arab or Persian or Turkish, etc. So the assumption was that that person was not black. Now, uh, if you look at that on the face of it, it, it it's, it's just the, the, the first look, it, it's worrying some. But it's important that when we go to Muslim text, whether hadith, exegetical text, uh, or even legal text, we look at under which chapter, for example, uh, Al-Imam Muslim placed uh, this hadith. It, it could be that, and, and hadith, again, don't tell us all the things that happened, is that the master could have asked the prophet for two slaves. He may even ask the prophet for three slaves or four slaves. So one cannot, by just reading that hadith, put a race and even a racial connotation to it. The Prophet wanted to save this. This one Muslim may have been tortured. So the Prophet wanted to save the life of this Muslim. And then, and, and the master, the Prophet said, okay, I'll give you two slaves. It had nothing to do with color. It had nothing to do with skin color of the person. So, so, so as much as we say yes, there is lots for us to revisit our exegetical and our legal text. But at the same time, we must make sure that we don't read them with, 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 with our jaundiced lenses of the 21st and the 20th century, and especially of Western modernity. So there's a need, yes, that we that we may find some of those, and there are prejudices indeed in our. And views within our exegetical and legal text, but I, I think one of the things we shouldn't do, we shouldn't. Now I read Al Ghazali, for example. Now my point is, Al Ghazali was a bigoted racist. I think that is just wrong. I think that means I've done a complete ideological re reading. Nasir did not see. I don't think they were racist. I think we, we we should be able to place them and 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 say that they were wrong, but to now accuse this text of being bigoted and racist. I think uh, that is that is that is far fetched, and we should be careful, uh, 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 you know, just uh, the, the labeling them as racist and bigoted, and therefore their authors as that. We can certainly say they were wrong. We can certainly, but not as a value statement, but not as a value judgment. And this is what uh, you know this orientalist racist tropes, because now the West needs partners. They need to show that, you know, we are actually okay. We actually came to free you from Islam. And that is absolutely wrong because we don't have that uh, racism uh, within Islamic, in the Islamic legacy. So, I mean, thank you. Thank you so much for that uh, contribution, uh, Dr. Mathis. I mean, just again to kind of summarize, I mean, you mentioned that some of these scholars, naturally, all of these scholars are working within their own contexts, but in the same way as modern day interpreters, we also come with our own baggage and our own contexts. Um, and we can't escape that when we are engaging and dealing with some of these classical scholars, texts and views. Absolutely. I, I think, thank you for summarizing it so in a succinct way, uh, Dr. Bashir. Yes, indeed.
So I guess in a sense, it, it kind of comes back to the start of the conversation when we emphasized the need, in fact, for a, a more of a decolonial approach to the study of Islam and Islamic history, um, just so we can also reflect on the angles and lenses through which we're producing our analysis also. Absolutely. Indeed, absolutely. And and we must appreciate and a decolonial uh, uh, approach means that we go back to our Islamic libraries in the world, our Islamic archives, and and we see what our predecessors have left us. You know, uh, we work, we build on the, uh, uh, we cannot throw things into the sea, we cannot deny things, and, and we build as people 200 years later will come and they will read us as their predecessors. And that to me is a decolonial approach. And to see Muslims as human beings. Muslims, yes, Islam, uh, of course, uh, uh, for, for, for a believing Muslim, Islam is at the center of my discourse. But Muslims are human beings. Um, and this abnormalizing of Muslims, this Orientalist tropes was all the time about abnormalizing Muslims into, you know, so, and, and, and Muslims, unfortunately, it appears to me, sometimes fall, we sometimes fall in that trap of abnormalizing ourselves, albeit unwittingly. And so, yes, coming back, and that is a decolonial approach. But the decolonial approach also means that as Muslims, as believers, we know that we are answerable to Allah, and to Allah we will answer uh, for how we conducted ourselves in this world. That's why belief is central to, to, to our decolonial approach, um, is that it's not simply an archive, but it's an archive. Uh, uh, and the scholars before us who left us, this, these were believers, and we are believers. We are believers in Allah. Uh, we, uh, we hold on to Muhammad, you know, as the teacher, the ultimate teacher of the prophet of God, the seal of prophets here. But who came to teach us, and we understand that we produce knowledge, we live in this earth, uh, we live in this world, and we are believers, and to Allah we will uh, return and, uh, you know, give our report back, and as will be questioned. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh Dr. Shahid Mati, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it was an absolutely fantastic conversation. And thank you so much for inviting me, I think, inshallah, uh, uh, Dr. Bashir. I do, as well as the and and I'm also my. I'd like to express my uh, my gratitude and appreciation to Reorient, uh, to the whole Reorient project. All the people who are involved in Reorient. I had the good fortune, and indeed, I had the. I was given the honor by Reorient, and you know, at the University of Leeds. I hope you all of the best, and thank you once again to you, you know, for organizing this uh, and and the very important questions that you placed. Okay, uh, Dr. Mati, thank you. Wa alaikum salam This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.